Luke chapter 23, verses 25 through 31. Luke chapter 23, verses 25 through 31. I remind you, this is God's holy inerrant and infallible word, meaning it is trustworthy, it is true in every respect, and God's word remains true. Let's hear God's word. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we have thus far read the word of God and we pray that you would bless that word to us. We pray that you would bless that word to our souls. We ask, Lord, that you would help us both to believe to be undergirded in our faith and belief and trust, but also more than that, to walk in the fear of the Lord and to determine, while depending utterly upon the grace of God in Christ Jesus, to obey what we hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever endured abject humiliation, a moment when perhaps you had to walk past a group of people that had been told something about yourself or when you were at work and you knew that everyone else knew something that was embarrassing, something that troubled you, something that you did not wish others to know. Maybe in some way we can identify in some way with the idea of not, not the humiliation of Christ, for Christ endured humiliation unlike any other human being has ever endured, but... But he endured humiliation, and we see in these pages the idea, the concept of humiliation, but we see what is identified in the Westminster Confession of Faith and in its catechisms as that state or that estate of humiliation in which Christ was was walking in this particular day. We we know that confessionally he was uh, humbled in his birth, and that in a low condition, being born of a woman who was a virgin, Uh, whose line was not necessarily extraordinarily pronounced within the life and the community of uh, Israel. He was born in a seemingly low condition uh, in in a manger he laid after he was born. And he was of such stature and of nature and such that Isaiah 53 tells us that one would look at him in his adult identity and say, this is not an extraordinary person, not someone with whom I would identify. And in fact, when he is suffering in his estate of humiliation, uh, we would uh, join uh, what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 again, where men look upon him and consider that he is being crushed by God 
uh, one who is an object of derision by God himself. Humiliation is an interesting concept, and maybe we've experienced in some way uh, the idea or the concept of humiliation, of being humiliated. This passage is about the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's far beyond and extraordinarily beyond anything we could ever experience. We see in this passage three things as it relates to this humiliation. We see a substitute. We see a sermon. We see a saying. We see a substitute. We see a sermon. And we see a saying. Now, all of this takes place as Jesus is walking. He is walking forward and he is being led along the way toward uh, Golgotha, toward the place where he will be uh, crucified. A crucifixion has not yet taken place in these short five verses, but it will soon take place. Christ will be laid on the cross, nailed and lifted up. But before that occurs, Luke records for us something of this brief word, this substitute, this this sermon and this brief saying that Jesus, in his suffering, having been scourged, extraordinarily beaten, in a beaten and humiliated uh, standing, uh, in, in a condition that is humiliating and extraordinarily humbling, he turns around and he speaks to these women and he shares a word. It's a word that is extraordinarily significant, I think, for the life of believers and for believers in his own time, but also for us. And it extends beyond just believers, but it extends to every single human being. A word of warning, a word of consideration of the end of all things, a word flowing from Christ's humiliation in those last days, in those last moments. It's Friday morning, early hours most likely. The court has met with Pilate. Pilate has tried uh, at the word from his wife who has said, I have been tortured in my dreams uh, by this man or about this man. He is righteous, have nothing to do with him. And yet Pilate has tried to distance himself from the Jews who have come from their overnight trials, their multiple trials where he has stood between before a smaller grouping of elders and then before a larger one early in the earliest morning hours when they could gather again legally. They have brought him to Pilate. They have not been willing to enter into the governor's place because uh, to do so would, would violate themselves, would 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 make them unclean, ceremonially unclean, and they would not be able to partake of the Passover. One is struck by the irony of that. And further they have they have sought the crucifixion of Christ. They're calling for they're calling for the worst possible punishment crucifixion. The most humbling the most humbling punishment crucifixion. And so there they are with Pilate. Pilate has examined Christ, asked him a series of questions, asked him who he is. Is it true that you are the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, you have said as it is. What you have said is true.
And he comes back out to the crowd now. There is a larger crowd gathering and gathering, and they are being, they are fomenting into a crowd with bloodlust by the religious authorities of the day who are, who are calling for this crucifixion, speaking of the evil of what Christ has done in calling himself equal with the Father and saying, I am. Again, how utterly foolish are the perspectives of liberal scholars in our present land who say Jesus never claimed to be the divine second person of the Trinity, and yet so much of what he says, how he conducts himself, what is recognized by those who question him, they know without a doubt, as it says in the earlier portion of this chapter, they have cried out for... Uh, They have cried out repeatedly. They are immensely offended by the fact that he has, in fact, claimed that he is equal with the Father of the Trinity, God of God, very God of very God. Jesus has said various things in response to Pilate. Pilate has answered Jesus, and he's gone back out into the crowd, uh, out before the religious authorities who are calling for the death of Christ. And he has said, I find this man to be innocent, and he has come back out again after another series of questions, and, and again, and he has said, look, I'll punish him, and I'll release him to you. And they have cried out, no, do not release him, release Barabbas, and he releases Barabbas. And then he hands Jesus over to them to do according to their will. It is precisely there that we find Jesus in the text this morning. He is marching, and it doesn't say very much about his physical condition, but here is a substitute in the very first verse of what we are considering this morning in verse 26. Here is a substitution. His name is Simon of Cyrene. It's early in the morning on Friday. Crowds have gathered. They're now all around Jesus, and they have gotten what they've wanted. Barabbas has been released, the the great criminal, the fomenter of rebellion. But Jesus has been taken into custody, and he is now going to be killed on the cross, crucified. Jesus is already suffering. He's already suffering. And the Roman authorities who are there to to bring about and, and, and to carry out this crucifixion along with and under the command of the Jews, they can identify the fact by simply by looking at him as he walks that he is suffering to such a degree that he cannot carry the cross upon which he is to die. It is the last ignoble, ignoble uh, wicked uh, thing, the last humiliation for sufferers who are going to be crucified, that they must carry their own cross. It's like prisoners who have been condemned to death and before they are to die, knowing that they are about to die with the guns trained on them being told, now dig, dig a grave for yourself. And once you've dug the last spot out, uh, we're going to fire and then you will position yourself such that you will die and fall into the grave that you have made. It's worse than that, for Jesus must carry the cross that he is going to be hung upon. It is a last bit of humiliation. Jesus, though, is already suffering, and he is suffering 
physically, but he is also suffering spiritually in his spirit. He is suffering for sinners. He is enduring the wrath of God. He is paying the redemption price for sinful men. He can barely stumble forward and walk. He cannot carry that, as, as, as the Greek says, the wood, uh, the wood on which he will be crucified. He has endured so much. There is, you remember only a few moments ago or a few weeks ago as we were going through this passage, but a few moments ago in the life of Christ, only a matter of a few hours before, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, drops of blood. Drops of sweat like drops of blood. Sweating profusely. Earnestly tired, but also earnestly anxious about what he is facing. Asking the Father, if this can be withdrawn from me, withdraw it, but not according to my will. Rather, let your will be done. He has come back repeatedly to his disciples. They have been sleeping. He has been utterly alone. He has been kicked and hit and spat upon. He has been traitoriously handed over by Judas. He has been abandoned, denied, held, questioned, ridiculed. And now he is to be treated like a piece of cattle that must walk to its place where it will be butchered. He has been humiliated in nakedness before perhaps as many as 600 men who mocked and stripped him and put on his head a crown of extremely painful thorns. He has been made fun of, spat upon, stripped again, humiliated with the enrobement in a purple robe. He is now on a death march, on a death march moving outside of the camp in a humiliating place of hatred and of thievery. He will die amongst two other, he is, he will die amongst two criminals. They will all together be crucified, hung on a cursed tree for a cursed death, and there will be untold numbers of people who will watch as he dies. Many of whom will say, if he is truly a prophet, let him pull himself off of that cross. He has just suffered, I think, one of the most significant blows, the denial of Peter, his friend, one of his closest disciples. But he is now enduring something worse than all of it, and that is the weight of sin. The imputation of the sins of sinful humanity, of men and women who are elect of God unto everlasting salvation. Those for whom Christ come to, came to die their sins being laid on him, and he himself suffering for them, scourged, beaten, unable physically to carry that cross because he is so overweighted with the effect of that beating and scourging, which would in fact expose organs for many who endured such beatings. His flesh torn away, that, 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 that thorn of crowns pressed into his head such that he is bleeding, he is sweating, he's probably unable to see. He hears the jeers of the crowds, but the worst weight of all is the weight of sin and separation from God the Father. 
the punishment for sin that were were due us, the stripes that by which we are healed, laid out upon his back. And Simon of Cyrene is the one pressed into service. He is from, let me see if I can say it now, Cyrenaica, which is the larger state, which is Libya, present-day Libya. It was the capital city, Cyrene was. The modern Arabic name for the city is Shahat, and he is identified in Scripture simply here as Simon of Cyrene. He is a, a Jew, a devout Jew who has come in to the city, most likely with his family, for the purpose of celebrating the Passover. And he is partaking. He is there, and who knows what he is doing there, but he is pressed into service. Perhaps he's walking by on his way to perform an errand in the early morning. Perhaps he's looking to the, to, to the welfare of his animals that he has brought into the city. Perhaps he's going to the temple to procure a lamb without spot or blemish for the sacrifice. We don't know. Perhaps he's just come into town. He has ascended the temple mount and he is just moving his way uh, through the road, on the road. We don't know. He is simply dragged from the crowd and he is pressed to carry this, this cross. We don't know if he had met Christ before this moment, but I believe he was a believer. And this is why, because Luke makes a point of mentioning Simon the Cyrene, but Mark mentions that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And Alexander and Rufus, Mark assumes that as he's writing his gospel account, he is assuming that his readers would know who Rufus and Alexander were, and thus that they would understand who Simon was. He is the, he is the father of two people that you know and that are loved seemingly in the church, Alexander and Rufus. Paul identifies in Romans 16, 13, Rufus in particular, and his mother, who is a believer, who is both Rufus's mother and mine, Paul says. It seems that Simon had two believing sons and a believing wife. It's quite possible that Simon became a believer that day. I'm hopeful that it was true. We're not explicitly told in Scripture, but he has a believing wife and two believing sons. And he is walking with Christ and carrying that cross on that day. What an incredible providence that he was pressed into that service. And so Simon must carry the cross because Christ physically cannot. So we see the substitute. But secondly, I think we see a sermon here in this passage. Following him is a large crowd of people and of women who are mourning and lamenting him. Now, it was traditional that women followed those who were led uh, to the hill for the purpose of crucifixion because it was a hated means of death, a, a method of killing someone, putting them to death. They would often carry uh, anesthetic on sponges to ease the pain and the passing away of those who are suffering deeply. They would weep because of this hated means of killing. But we are told something here that there was a large crowd of people following and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. I believe that these are women who loved Jesus, who loved Christ, despite the massive crowd that had called for crucifixion and substitution of Barabbas. 
instead of Christ and releasing Christ to the hatred of the crowds. Nonetheless, there are women who are weeping and mourning Jesus even to that last moment. Even when John has run away and all the rest of the disciples who loved Jesus and whom Jesus has told you are my friends, even though they have abandoned Jesus, there are these women who are, uh, despite the crowds, despite the abandonment of the disciples, despite all of these things, in an uncomfortable moment, nonetheless, they are happy to reveal who they are, even though Peter has denied the Lord three times. They walk with the Lord and they are with him and they are mourning him. They are lamenting him. And Jesus, looking upon their suffering, has a word. His word includes Hosea 10.8, as well as prophetic statements from Isaiah. And he is speaking of those words that were spoken to past generations where they were unrighteous and unjust stewards, shepherds of Israel who were dealing unjustly with the people of God, who had abandoned God, who were worshiping and fomenting the worship, encouraging the worship and adulterating the worship of God and encouraging the worship of idol- uh, in, a, in an idolatrous sense and the worship of false gods. And God says a day of reckoning is coming when you will cry out for the very mountains to fall upon you. You will ask to be cast into the depths of the sea. You will cry out for the ending of your life because the punishment which God has reserved for you will be so severe that you will ask for death. You will, you will beg to be removed from that judgment. And Jesus takes that Old Testament text and he says, this is coming upon Jerusalem. We know that Jesus was put to death in 30 or thereabouts A.D. And that in 70 A.D., and only 40 years hence, 70 A.D., the city itself will be razed to the ground. Stone will be removed from the walls such that there will no longer be any walls surrounding the city. The people will be utterly decimated and pressed into dispersion. Untold suffering will come and the Romans will be ruthless and they will dominate and they will occupy the city and destroy the people. And the, the, the perspective of those who live within the city, who have children, who are concerned for their children, they will look jealously at those women, women who have not had children. You see, there is painted a picture of, of, of mothers who look upon their children, who a mother in a day of destruction would look upon their children and desire that they would be saved and be delivered and they would be willing even themselves to give their lives for the sake of their children. Any mother who is worth her salt would do it. They will look upon those who have not had children and they will say, I wish that I had not had children and had the same standing as you without children. Days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. There is a day of destruction coming. There is a day of reckoning and of judgment coming. 
And Christ's last sermon was, the day of judgment is coming, prepare for that great day. In other words, there's nothing that you can do or say in life, there's nothing that you could ever take up in preparation for living that is more important than preparing for the day of judgment and of wrath. There's nothing more important that you can do than to prepare to face one day your Creator and to give an account for the totality of your life, thoughts and words, actions, all of it. Mr. Krumacher, in his wonderful book on the suffering Savior, says this, those who will then be found rejecting through obstinate unbelief and persevering impenitence, their truest friend and only Savior will find themselves in a position in which they will prefer annihilation to a continuance of existence. They will call upon the hills to crush them and bury them forever, but no outlet of escape will ever be found. Revelation chapter 6 takes up this same refrain, and it is a warning for us as well. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. He's John sees in heaven the lamb that was worthy to be slain, who has come forward when, when God proclaimed who is worthy to open the scroll with its seals. And he has come forward. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of great hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. And the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, the Kardashians and the Kennedys, the, the Bidens and, and the Trumps, all of them, every family on the face of this earth, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now, no one is asking for the destruction who is a believer. In the same passage, we are told that all those who are in Christ and who have believed in Christ, who are trusting in Jesus Christ, they are protected from the last great death. The great punishment But this is for all those who are in positions of influence in our world and those who have no influence at all. Those who are weak and those who are mighty. Those who are rich and those who are poor. But all those who have refused the Lord Jesus Christ and to use Kermacher's word, who through obstinate unbelief and persevering impenitence have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is what one day they will do. This is what one day you will do. If in fact you are among those who have obstinately refused Christ and failed to believe in Him and are perseveringly impenitent, meaning you will not acknowledge your sin. 
You will not acknowledge that before God you have broken His commands. You have continued to rebel against His Savior. You have rejected and refused His provision for your soul. You have protested your own self-righteousness. You have held out before Him the goodness of your life without calculating that in fact your sins far outweigh any imagined good. And any imagined good, if it is intrinsically and truly good, is only because of God at work in you. Revelation 9.6, During those days people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. If you are pertinently and perseveringly impenitent, if you are obstinately unbelieving, the day is coming when you will so despair of life that you will want it no longer and you will cry out for an intense and immediate death so that you will have some imagined sense of relief. But God is your, still your God both in life and in death. And he will raise all from the grave and unite once again body and soul and you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Are you prepared for that great day? Are you prepared to stand before God and give an answer for your life? Are you prepared to tell him, I plead no other thing than the blood of and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is some other excuse on your lips. Mark the desperation of those who cry out. There is no record of their prayers being answered that the mountains have fallen upon them. Their desperation for death and an escape from enduring judgment and punishment is so intense that we should take note. Thirdly, we see a saying, we have seen a substitute, we have seen a sermon, but now we hear a saying, and this is in verse 31, Jesus says this, for if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is walking to Golgotha, he is soon to be put to death. And the wickedness of his own people, his countrymen who are crying out for his death, is still ringing in his ears. And the Roman authorities are going to put him to death. But more than that, worse than anything, he is going to suffer the rejection and the forsakenness that he will suffer at the hands of his father. For the purpose of bringing about your joy, which is made complete in Christ, who endured the suffering and shame, for the purpose of presenting you before his Father, blameless and with great joy. He is enduring all of this. His intent is to bring about your salvation and our freedom from sin and from guilt, to wash us clean in his robes, to be washed in the blood of Christ, to to experience a cleanliness without which we cannot see the Lord. We must be plunged beneath the cleansing power of his blood. We must be washed in the blood of the righteous Lamb of God. 
And in the midst of all of this, Christ is humbling himself even to death. He is feeling, he is bearing the weight of God's wrath. He is laying down his life as an offering for sin. He is enduring the painful, shameful, cursed death of the cross. And if Jesus is enduring this and he counts himself in light of this saying as as being both the totality of himself, what he is suffering, and the circumstances of his death as green smoldering fire, as something slowly burning, which is hot. If you touch it, it's still hot, it's still real, it's still burning. If Jesus is saying, what I'm enduring is green and smoldering fire, but prepare yourself for the day when it will be burning with a greater intensity that you cannot imagine. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? You know what that's like. You go to the local Cumberland Farms or some other convenience store and you buy a bag of dried wood and it's kiln dried. You bring it home, it's gone in about 10-15 minutes. It was fun while it lasted, but that kind of wood is so very dry, it's almost worthless. But it's so very dry that it will burn with an intensity and you'll say, why did I put so much wood on the fire? And Jesus is comparing Green wood that, that is not yet ripe for the fire, but it, that, is, that is burning and smoldering with a fire that will be reserved, that will burn intensely, unimaginably. Jesus is forewarning us here that there is, there is a mechanism by which God is reserving a greater fuel for a divine and holy an eternal conflagration. That one day what you see in Christ poured out in judgment on the Son for the elect of God, you will see in its entirety poured out upon all the sea of humanity that has rejected Christ and that has persisted in unfaithfulness, persisted in embracing sin. This present world really doesn't believe in judgment, does it? We share the gospel with people who really are convinced of two things. One, there really is not going to be an eternal judgment because God's too good for that. God's too loving for such an activity. And two, I am far better than you think I am. I am good. So good, in fact, that God will bring me to heaven. He'll see my goodness and welcome me by my first name. So many of the people that we come in contact with believe these things. But there is a scriptural reality that that defies these assumptions that we make. This present world doesn't believe in judgment or a final consummation of accountability before our God or standing one day to give an answer to God for one's life. But the scripture says this in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. 
Revelation 21. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Peter warns us in 2 Peter 3, 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a certainty of a final judgment and that should motivate the believer to live for God. There is a certainty of future judgment that it should also make us weep deeply over those who are lost and not believing. Those who are caught up in persistent unbelief and a persistent unbridled embrace of sin. Do you weep over the lost is a simple question that should humble all of us. Do you weep as Christ tells the women who are weeping for him? Don't weep for me. Weep for those who will endure the judgment of God's wrath. Without a savior, without one who intercedes for them, without the intercession of one who is a lamb who has come to take away their sins. Weep for them. If you would be a believer and if you would reflect in some way the the perspective of Jesus Christ towards unbelievers, don't ridicule, don't make fun. Don't just chalk them up as somehow rejected, uh, worthy to be judged and and rejected by you because you ha- you know best about what condition they are in. And you're a believer. Weep over the lost because Christ weeps over the lost and has commanded and encouraged his people to weep over the condition of the lost and of the future reality of what they will suffer. Every cataclysmic earthquake and hurricane and tornado and storm is not some harbinger of the end of the earth or of global flooding or of global destruction. The earth cannot cease until God himself commands it to to cease. The world cannot come to an end. I'm not calling for an unmitigated lack of stewardship. We are stewards of God. God has given us this planet to subdue and to use to his glory to be stewards over all that we see and, and, and consume but the earth is not coming to an end until God says it's coming to an end the earth will not cease and the heavens be rolled up until God commands that the earth should cease and the heavens be rolled up but when that day comes and until that day comes Every single thing that we see cataclysmically affecting our earth is in some small way a reminder from God that the end of the world and life as we know it is coming. And one day we will stand before our Creator face to face. Storms and hurricanes and tornadoes are harbingers. They are reminders. They are signposts telling us that the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. And so believers should be weeping over the condition of the lost, not just weeping so that we are an inert body of immovable nothing, 
but rather weeping and moving and working and actively seeking and witnessing and sharing and praying fervently for the salvation of the lost. But if we don't know Jesus and we have not, and we have continued to embrace sin and we have not believed, and may God the Holy Spirit convince you and show you that with the Lord, a thousand years is as one day, and he is coming soon. And he is reserving, even though we observe the smoldering fire and what judgment Christ endured, we will see one day an unmitigated disaster, a wild fire of God's judgment that will consume the earth and the heavens and all that in them is. Don't weep for Jesus. Don't misunderstand that the cross is in, intended for a perpetual sympathy for Christ because he is no longer on the cross. He has paid the price. He is now ascended at the right hand of God the Father. But when we see the suffering Jesus endured, isn't it, isn't it clear? Isn't it a clear proof that God will judge the ungodly one day? If God judged his Son... Isn't that proof, as our sins were laid on Him, that God will come one day and judge the ungodly fully, awfully, horribly, but truthfully, righteously? The cross is not intended for an eternal sympathy for Jesus. It is intended for, for, for men and women, boys and girls, to see and believe, to repent and turn away from sin and self-righteousness, not to wallow in self-pity, nor embracing a self-goodness or an imagined spiritual privilege that will not in any way stand up. It will be burned away in the fire of judgment one day when Christ comes again. Believe. Believe in Christ and be saved. Repent. Turn away from your sins and trust in him. And in the meantime, weep, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Weep over the condition of the lost. Cry out to them and, and share with them what you have heard in this passage today. And ask the Lord to help you to walk in such a way that each week and every day that the Lord would lead someone across your path so that you can be a signpost of the grace that you have received through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.